Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. We're just really, really, really glad that you're here. Uh, We're really sorry about Friends Day again, but it's out of our control. Um, uh, It's too bad. We couldn't do something like, I know there's a lot of superhero stuff going on in the world nowadays. Too bad we couldn't like put in a phone call to Superman, get him to swirl around clouds a little bit, blow them all. No, no superhero movie fans in the house. You're just too embarrassed to admit it, huh? You're too embarrassed. David and Sonia, the only two that are brave enough to admit it, and the rest of you just watch them without anybody knowing. But speaking of superheroes what we call in the business a bad segue right there. Speaking of superheroes, anybody go to see the last Avengers movie and end up living there for a month waiting for it to end? No. Three hours with no uh, intermission or bathroom breaks. That's just, I have not, by the way, so no spoilers, please. Don't yell out the ending. Um, But I'm amazed nowadays in 2019 at just how absolutely enthralled us adults are with comic book fantasies. When did this become a thing? I missed the memo. I did. I missed the memo. And uh, I've watched some of them. I've seen some of them. In fact, I I tried to watch one with my kids not too long ago and turned it on. was all excited and everything. Come on, kids. We're going to do, you know, it's dad time. Feeling good about myself as a dad, right? And, and uh, they said, Dad, uh, we already watched this one with you. And I was like, no, no, I've never seen this. And they said, yeah, Dad, we have. And they all look the same to me. I realized they all are the same movie to me, right? There's flying girls and dudes that wear capes and their underwear on the outside of their pants. Like, what is up with guys wearing their underwear on the outside of their... My uncle did that, and they called him an alcoholic. So I just, you know... I don't know, and I know that I'm picking on the nerds just a little bit here and being a little bit of a bully, but it's not just nerds, it's everybody is into this, and again, I admit that I've seen a few, but it's, it's everywhere, because everybody's into this superhero thing nowadays, right? The heroes, the Avengers, and all of this stuff, and Marvel versus DC, and, and you know, Mr. Spock and Star Wars, and that's together, right? Or did I get, no, I'm just, I'm just messing with you, just messing, I know the difference there. But it actually, it, it leads to a great icebreaker question, and I think it would be, maybe if you don't take anything else away from, no, don't remember this part, but I, I think it would be good for everybody at lunch today. Just, you know, table conversation. You guys can look around and ask each other. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Now, you're in church, so x-ray vision better not be your answer. I'm just saying. It just better not be your answer. I think my superpower, if I could have one superpower, I think it would be um, that I would be able to gracefully end awkward conversations. Like, I would love to have, I've even got, I've thought about this because I was, you know, I knew I was going to talk about it. I've even got my superhero name, Ox Squash. That's my name, just like to be able to squash any awkward conversation. But I would wear my underwear still inside my pants because that would lead to unnecessarily awkward conversation. I can't be my own kryptonite, right? Um, but I think that that would be pretty awesome to be able to gracefully end every con awkward conversation. I'm kind of wishing I had that superpower right now. But the reason that we daydream 
about superpowers is, is just, be, you know, the, the reason that we love the Avengers and Superman and Superwoman and Wonder Woman and all of these things is because what they do just seems so far out of our reach. It's just amazing, right? I mean, none of us are ever going to leap over a tall building in a single bound, right? None of us are ever going to be able to lift a burning car up over our heads, unless it's one of those smart car things that aren't really cars. None of us are ever going to be able to heat up our leftovers with laser eye beams. Like, none of us are going to be able to do these things. And so we fantasize about these things. We fantasize and dream and daydream about being heroes. But none of us ever really think that we could be a hero, which is why I think today and what we're going to talk about today is so important as we're kind of talking about small groups and community and coming together and all of this kind of stuff. I think you can be super even though you can't be a superhero. I think you can, we can actually become heroes to different people in our lives, although you can't be a superhero, but we don't need to be a superhero to save the day. We don't but you can still be a hero. And so saving the day, it just doesn't seem like an option for us until, and this might surprise some of us, and this is why we're, how I'm trying to tie all this together, it doesn't seem like it's an option for us until Jesus comes along. And when Jesus starts talking about heroism and, 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 and saving the day for other people, he reframes the conversation, and he puts the idea of saving the day into such just like human and, and common and touchable packaging, right? And, and suddenly being a hero and, and saving the day, it actually does become something accessible to every single person in the room. And he does, he does the same. Jesus is just brilliant. I, I, just, I love studying Jesus and everything that he taught and everything that he said. He does it with a lot of different concepts, strength and beauty and, and, and integrity and value, all of these things. He just makes it so, so very accessible, and, and he's so brilliant. He's the master storyteller, and, and he, he's the master teacher, and because he's the master teacher, he's also the master at making all of his teachings just doable. And so he tells this story that we're going to look at today, and, and you've probably heard of this story. You've probably heard the story itself, or maybe at least the phrase that comes. And, and, and with one question at the end of this story, with a simple story and then one question at the end of this story, Jesus makes being a hero just open to anyone. Jesus, with this one story and this one question, and this is the scary part and kind of the, the convicting part, he actually takes away all of our excuses for not being a hero. Wow. Wow. Takes them all away. And this is something that just isn't for Christians. This isn't just for Jesus followers. This is something for people, for citizens of communities, for neighbors, for us, brothers and sisters of this common human existence. So I want to tell you this, this story, and I want to help us land on this question and challenge us all to, to test out what Jesus did, just to put it into practice, just to give it a shot for a little bit in your life. And so we're going to tell this story, and it goes a little something like, yeah, two people again. Wow. Okay, so on one occasion, which means there were a lot of different occasions, but on one occasion... There was an expert in the law, and he's talking about the Jewish law there, who stood up to test Jesus. And i got to give you some background here because what's a random lawyer doing testing Jesus, right? Jesus came to the Jewish people. This is during the first century AD. He shows up in Israel. He's born there, Christmas night, all of that kind of stuff. The Jewish people were kind of marked out as God's special people because of their ancestor named Abraham, and, and they were going to be the people 
that God was going to use, the family, Abraham's people, that God was going to use to rescue the fallen creation. You guys remember the fall, right? There's the garden and Adam and Eve, and then people mess up. Well, God's going to rescue them. And so he picks Abraham, and then by extension, Abraham's descendants, to be the people that are going to rescue the rest of creation. And he tells Abraham and tells his people, I'm going to so bless your life, so make your lives great, that everybody around you is going to turn and look at you. And then you're going to take my blessings and actually pour them out on the people around you and share those blessings with other people. And everybody's going to see how good I am. And everybody is going to willingly come back to me because that's part of the whole human existence, right? We all have free choice. We all get to choose whether or not we want to follow God or come to God or not. But what happened is the Jewish people, they turned self-centered and they wanted to keep God's blessings for themselves. In fact, what they wanted to do was actually use their God's power to hurt other people. But they're supposed to be the rescuers for all the other people. So it turns out that the rescuers need rescuing. And so Jesus shows up. And, and he's the ultimate rescuer of the rescue people. And, and they call him their Messiah. Or they didn't know at the time that he was the Messiah. But they were waiting on a Messiah to show up. But not all of the Jewish people were on board with the kind of rescue that Jesus was offering. Because he shows up and instead of talking about taking over the world, he's talking about humility. Instead of talking about killing off all of the Romans that were oppressing them and basically enslaving the Jewish people, he's talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about forgiving and turning the other cheek. And and why, Jesus? Why would you frame all of this rescue work in these terms? And the reason why is because they were in need of being rescued themselves from the kind of people that they had become, which sounds a lot like our stories, doesn't it, right? We're all kind of in need of being rescued from the kind of people that we kind of default to on our own. And the goal of all of this, the outcome of all of this, was that someday that God would give immortality, that we humans, not just the Jewish people, although they were going to be the first, they were the ones through whom everything else was going to flow, that all of us would come to be part of the kind of life, to live the kind of lives that is worth lasting forever. Because all of us know and all of us have experienced, maybe in ourselves or at least maybe in people that we love, that there are some kinds of life, there are some kinds of living that we hope won't go on forever. They either cause too much pain or they're in too much pain. And, and you know, Western Christianity, we've kind of watered this down a little bit, I think, to, to just talking about like heaven. Like a lot of people think that Christianity is just about like making sure that you go to heaven after you die. It's like a, you know, kind of a religious fire insurance kind of thing. It's just this escapism kind of thinking, right? Like it doesn't really matter what happens in this life. I just want somebody to tell me that I'm going to heaven after I die. But when you look at this word or this phrase like eternal life that Jesus talks about, life to the full, life abundantly that Jesus talks about, that the Bible talks about, it's about becoming the kind of person who lives the kind of life that is actually worthy of lasting forever and ever and ever. There's a lot more, a lot more to it. And this is why the takeaway from today's message I think is so important. I think this is why Sundays at church are so important. Like you should, you should find a place. If you don't come and worship with us every Sunday, I get it. That's fine. You know, I think we're pretty awesome, but I'm biased. But you, you got to find somewhere somewhere to worship, somewhere to like challenge and increase your faith and to grow your faith. This is why I think small groups are so important. It's why we do them here at City Grace. And you need to connect, connect, connect yourself to other people with the same kind of goal of living that life, of becoming that kind of person that lives that kind of life. Not to earn brownie points so you'll go to heaven. That is so shallow and that's too simple, but it's about the influence and the peer pressure of other people that can walk with you and pray for you and and encourage you. And so being a Christian, it's all about belonging to this faith family. 
people that can come around you and, and be part of the transformation into those kinds of people. And, and the Jesus story, it's just, it's just so much richer and deeper than the stereotype. So there's this expert. That's the background. Sorry. So there's this expert in the Jewish law, this expert in the Jewish scriptures, and, and he's, he has this first century Jewish understanding of what their scriptures mean, and, and he comes up to Jesus, and he's kind of against Jesus because Jesus by his actions and the way that he treats people, is kind of undermining all of the influence that the religious people of the day had. Like they had their religious systems, they had their churches, and Jesus comes along and everybody starts going to the Jesus church, but it wasn't really even a building. They just start following Jesus. They all start listening to Jesus. And, and so the, you know, the religious people kind of organized against Jesus to kind of try and embarrass him and try and show him up as a fraud. And so this guy comes and he wants to embarrass Jesus. He's a legal expert. Jesus is a carpenter. He's a legal expert. Jesus has no formal religious training. And he wants the crowd to see Jesus as incompetent as a leader of things that have to do with God. And so he's doing, you know, just all of these things to really try and, and twist Jesus up. And he thinks he has Jesus on this really technical law question, but, you know, it's Jesus. So what you going to do, guy, right? And so he comes up, teacher, he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Which is actually a great question. Like anybody ever wish that you could just ask God sometime, like, can you just bottom line this for me? Like, you know, can, can you save me all the pain and all the confusion of reading through the Bible and all this stuff? And, but Jesus knows this isn't really the man's question. Jesus knows he's there kind of as an opponent and he's there to try and trick Jesus. There's a question or two behind the question. So Jesus doesn't just answer him straight up. Jesus actually responds to his question with a question. And he says, well, what is written in the law? You're the lawyer. You're the legal expert. What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? You know all the Jewish law. You've been to school. I just built things with wood. So why don't you tell me? And then we'll both know. You know, why don't you just explain to me? And so to answer him, the lawyer quotes from the old Jewish scriptures. He quotes from what we would call the Old Testament part of our Bible. And we call it the Old Testament to them. It was just their, their testament, their Bible. And notice this. He actually gets the answer right. He answers correctly. And everybody that was in the crowd that day, and there was a big crowd around them. Verse 25, where we are in Luke chapter 10, it tells us this man has, stand, has stood up and Jesus is standing up. Everybody else is sitting down and he's right there. He's answering the question, and he quotes from the Old Testament scripture. Everybody in the crowd probably knows it. There was no like separation of church and state. They all grew up in Jewish Sunday school. They could probably all quote it with the lawyer. The lawyer knew it. Jesus knew it. Everybody around knew it. While this guy's quoting it, the people in the crowd are probably quoting it along with him. He answers to Jesus, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he goes, and he's going to say a little bit more, but before we get there again, let me, let me pause and let me talk to you a little bit. This guy's done his homework. There's a reason he gets the answer right. He's not a dumb lawyer. He's a smart lawyer. It's the worst kind. And he's coming to Jesus. And somebody's already asked Jesus a version of this question before. They asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment, right? And what's the thing that God wants us to do? to be able to inherit eternal life. And Jesus had answered that question right in line with what this expert has said right here. But then Jesus had stumped the guy in the first conversation by tacking on a second part that nobody saw coming. 
And when Jesus tacked on the second part, and you might know this if you know a little bit about the Bible, he didn't just like pull it out of the air, pull it out of the blue. Jesus actually quotes another piece of what we would call the Old Testament, but nobody had ever put these two things together before like Jesus put them together. And what Jesus had quoted and what this man knew was coming was found in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people. Somebody say among your people. But love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we're not Jewish, probably most of us in here. We didn't grow up memorizing what they would call the Torah, their law. But when Jesus added that second part, when Jesus added that to the answer of what, do, you know, answer to the question of what does God really care about, the crowd, that like there was a murmur that had to have gone through that crowd. When Jesus added something to what everybody just assumed was the most important thing, like all of a sudden, Jesus, you're messing with our traditions. You're messing with what my grandpa taught me and my dad taught me and what my local priest has taught me. And, and nobody saw the second part coming. But once Jesus said it, like everybody had to admit, like that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, he got it right. Jesus is right. But here's what it did. When Jesus added this second part about loving your neighbor as yourself, here's what this did that was so big. And it seems small to us because we've heard this probably so many times. But to them, this was so revolutionary. But what it did was it shifted people's thinking about their relationship with God from only considering their vertical orientation to suddenly taking into consideration their horizontal orientation. The old thinking was, it doesn't matter what I do to you. Old thinking and old religion thinking is, it doesn't matter what I say to you or how I treat you. All that matters is what I do and what I say and how I treat God. But the new kind of thinking that Jesus introduced, the new thing that Jesus was saying is that what I do to you, how I treat you, actually determines whether or not I am good with God. How I treat you and what I say to you actually proves whether or not I am good with God. Wow, that's powerful. That's a lot better, isn't it? We've all known religious people that we thought were hypocrites. Can I hear an amen? <laughs> You're all subdued. You don't want to say it too loud because some of them are here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But he <laughs> He's holding the mic. No, I'm just kidding. But here's where things had gone south for Jewish people. They had looked at this Leviticus 19 and 18, and they said, well, you know, there's that little phrase in there before the comma among your people. So you know what? The love your neighbor part, that just means love my neighbors who are my people. I only got to forgive things and let things go and give love to people who are my people. And so we hate everyone else. And they kind of devolved into this intense nationalism as a Jewish people. And they wanted their super god to just be like the Roman and the Greek super gods, where he would go and destroy all of the other gods and destroy all of the other peoples and enslave all of the other peoples and hurt their enemies and kill their enemies and bless them and starve their enemies. And what, you know, again, what Jesus was offering them in terms of thinking about their God and his rescue plan was something that was going to be good not only for the Jewish people, but this is the part they didn't like. It was supposed to flow through the Jewish people and actually bless all of the other people. And so in the first confrontation that Jesus had had, he had put this neighbor idea together with the greatest commandment of loving God. And now today, at the second confrontation around the same topic, now he's about to do a Jesus thing. And he's about to expand 
what everybody's heard him say the first time and challenge what these people have thought about neighbors for so long. And so Jesus, he tells them, so, you know, you go ahead and tell me what do you think we need to do to inherit eternal life. You tell me. You're the expert. What does it say in the law? And the lawyer was waiting for this. And again, in verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And I know where you're going, Jesus. I've done my homework. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, I got you figured out. I knew you were going to go there. That's why I showed up today. I'm ready to stump you, right? And I've got another trick up my sleeve, but I've got more for you. I'm going to expose you today that you don't really know everything you're talking about. And I think Jesus, when he hears this man quote all that he has, I think Jesus like smiles at him and starts to do the slow clap. I mean, Jesus was just, he's just so good at this stuff. And he tells him in verse 28, he tells him, you've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, you will live. This is all you got to do. Great job. You got my answer right. Usually nobody gets my answer right. This isn't just about the vertical. There is a horizontal consideration as proof of your vertical connection with your God. And Jesus kind of like pats him on the shoulder, you know. Great job. Everybody, give it up for lawyer guy. Everybody clap for lawyer guy. He got it right. And then it's like Jesus disengages. And he doesn't try and, listen, Jesus is so good, so smart. He doesn't try and one-up the guy. He doesn't try and make himself the star of the conversation. What he said was already the star of the conversation. He's just content to kind of leave it there, right? And it's like Jesus is content to turn and walk away, and the lawyer suddenly realizes things aren't going according to plan. He was there to expose Jesus and and embarrass Jesus, right? He's going to trap him, but Jesus is just congratulating him. That was a little bit unexpected. And now he has Jesus where he wants him, but he's got to press the point further if he's going to win. The, the exchange and win the discussion. But Jesus just seems content to let things drop. But this man, this lawyer, wanted to justify himself. I'm not done. Don't walk away. Jesus, we are God's special people. And Jesus, you keep teaching that we need to love our enemies and forgive those that have wronged us and let revenge belong to God and, and just worry about the good stuff. And if there's anyone without sin, they're the only ones that can throw stones of condemnation. And if one of these Roman soldiers that walks our streets and oppresses us, if they you know, force us to carry their load for a mile, you tell us we have to go the second mile legally, or not legally, just out of the goodness of our hearts. And what's, you know, what's up with that? Jesus, I'm an expert. I know these rules. And I know that we're supposed to love our neighbor, but I want to expose you today and to justify myself. So Jesus, can you please tell me who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I get what you did, Jesus. I can't see your vertical connection with God. I can't see whether or not you really love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And, but I can see how well you treat your neighbor. I can see how well you treat the people around you, but you still left it too general. So who is my neighbor. And here's the thing about this guy's question. We've all asked a version of this guy's question before. We've all wondered this before. We've all wanted God or a pastor or a religious leader, somebody with influence in our life, to kind of bottom line things for us before, right? We've all wanted to ask this, but we didn't want to seem too shallow. We've all wanted to ask this of God, but we were kind of scared we might get struck by lightning or something, you know, like but God, can you really help me out? And I'm kind of done with church, kind of not sure about the whole boring preacher thing. They talk too much anyway. I'm done with the the hypocritical, thank you for not saying amen during that part. I'm done with the hypocritical Christians. 
done with the church people, people with fish bumper stickers on their car and they cut me off in traffic. What's that? I mean, like, if you have, by the way, if you have a City Grace sticker on the back of your car, be kind. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. You will notice I'm the pastor. I have no City Grace stickers on my car. Just don't want anybody to know. So, <laughs> probably shouldn't have admitted that, but that's part of my motivation. I'm just being honest in church. But, but you know, I'm done with all this. So can you bottom line, God, would you please just tell me some version of this question. What's the minimum amount of loving my neighbor I need to do to go to heaven? Can I hear an amen from somebody? What's the least amount I can do? Is this like community service? Like, do I need to go put a couple of hours in the soup kitchen, get a paper signed by somebody, and like file? The, is there a place online I can submit my good works? You know, like, can I email somebody just to let them know, right? And, and Jesus knows what this guy's trying to do. He's trying to justify himself. He's trying to say, we don't need all of your extra that you're trying to give us. We're doing fine on our own. And, and he knows that this guy's intention is out of alignment with God's plan for God's people. Jesus knows this about the man. If God's people are supposed to live lives that are like full and running over of, you know, with God's blessings, why in the world would they want to keep that to themselves? If they're not responsible for the supply, are you worried that the supply is going to run dry? Like if it's not you that's given yourself the blessings, if it's coming from heaven, what are you worried about, and why are you so stingy, and why do you want to keep it for yourself? I mean, freely you have received, so freely give. Can I hear an amen? Right? I mean, you know, why can't the rich share with the poor? Why should all the blessing be kept by the top 1%? Does that sound familiar to anybody? I mean, you know, it's amazing as I was studying this, and this kind of came up in my studies. I mean, the issues that we face, Jesus answers them all. Some people say that Jesus is outdated and antiquated and all these kinds of things. I'm telling you, Jesus is more relevant in 2019 than he has been. I don't know how long. I mean, he's here. He's brilliant. He is wisdom. He's radiant. He's perfect. I mean, his words across every culture, across every century, Jesus, his love and his ethics stands unchanged. And it stands so powerful, so powerful. So many solutions to what we face as humans and as Americans. So Jesus, who, who is my neighbor? What's the minimum amount of loving my neighbor that I need to do? And Jesus turns around and it's like he engages with the man again. But he doesn't just answer the guy's question straight up. He tells a story like Jesus always does. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And I think the man probably groaned, oh, Jesus, you always do this. Come on, somebody. I think the man probably groaned because a lot of times when we pray for things and God like, doesn't answer right away, we groan. Can I hear an amen? Ask for something in prayer and life takes a detour, right? I, just, I prayed and asked for one simple request and you just don't give me a yes or no. I don't have time for story time. It's 2019, God. Like 140 characters or less, please, you know. Can you please give it to me in Instagram story form? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Did you hear the one about the guy who got attacked by robbers? And here's, a, here's the thing that amazes me about this story. Show of hands in the room. How many of you have ever heard of the story of the Good Samaritan before? Come on, keep them up. I can't hardly see up here. It's bright. 
Look at this. All over. The, how many of you have maybe never heard the story but heard the phrase, Good Samaritan? Can I see a show of hands all over the room? No, if you answer the first time, you can answer again. Sorry. Yeah, because it was like only three people the second time. That, so this, this example isn't going very well. Um, here's the thing. Anybody ever heard of the Good Sam Club? I'm desperate here. Like, anybody? No. Okay, well, let's close today. We'll take an offering. <laughs> but even in this room, and, and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. I've got to go in a different route, but just hang with me for a second, okay? All over the world, I promise you, don't Google it, but I promise you, for the past 1,500 of the last 2,000 years, we could ask a lot of people, and they would raise their hand, not most people, just a lot, we would ask a lot of people if they've ever heard of the Good Samaritan, and a lot of people would raise their hands. We use that phrase, Good Samaritan. How many of you know there are Good Samaritan laws in America? One person. That's it. You guys are not with me today. You need to know the law. Hello. It's not a Christian thing. Just, you know, know things. How many people have a Samaritan friend in the room? Nobody. I expected zero on that one. So this is a big deal, and you don't know about it. But that's why you're at church today. I'm going to tell you about it now. So next week, when I ask you if you've heard of the Good Samaritan, everybody's going to say? Okay, thank you. There we go. So this is a big deal that Jesus introduced something 2,000 years ago in this story with the Good Samaritan. And this ethic and this thing that he introduced 2,000 years ago is still relevant today. The world and even we in, 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 in intelligent, scientific Western civilization here in America, we still use this as some measure of what it might mean to be a good person. And when Jesus introduced this, it was revolutionary. Because when he introduced this, it was shocking to everybody. And the reason that it was shocking to everybody is because nobody was doing it. This is not our default state. This is not, not what we naturally do. And this is why this story has endured. This is not normally how we use our powers and our resources. But Jesus introduced this, and now we have Good Samaritan organizations. We have Good Samaritan laws in our country and in other Western countries. What Jesus brought into the human experience, not just on Calvary and on the cross, but even in stories and ideas and concepts and ethics like this, they have changed the world. The impact of Jesus in history is absolutely undeniable. It is. And if we were to take just this story and just what we're about to talk, to talk about in the next few minutes, if we were to take this and, and apply it in our families and apply it maybe in our workplaces and our, our organizations, and, and if we were to just embrace this one principle for one month, I'm telling you, your life would be better. Your family would be better. Your organization would be better. Every relationship that you're in would be better. I mean, it's amazing. It's remarkable. And the reason it is, I think, is because it came from Jesus. And there's something about him and who he was. And this is just one of the reasons I think you need to take Jesus seriously. There's a lot of work going on, a lot of like subtext and influences in our society to kind of marginalize Jesus and push him to the side. But whatever your experience with religion and the church and faith before, and we're sorry if someone ever scared you off, I'm telling you, you need to re-engage with your faith. You need to start looking at Jesus again. There is something about Jesus. And I know I keep saying it, but I, I, I so mean it. He is radiant. He stands above 
everything. He is so absolutely brilliant. He has the ability to like cut to the heart of the matter and expose everything in us that just needs to be worked on. But he doesn't leave us just like open and bleeding. He's actually able then to work on us and to change us. And I'm telling you, in this room are story after story after story of people who have experienced the grace and the mercy of Jesus. So here's the cool thing, real quick. Quick commercial break, right in the middle of the message. And we should change the name of this from small groups to Good Samaritan Practice Club or something. We're launching summer small groups. And if you need a place to start practicing what it means to be a Good Samaritan, lucky for you, you can sign up today. But wait, there's more. No, I'm just kidding. There's no more. But I just, I've always wanted to say that. There are groups and they can help you connect. There are groups for family and young adults and, you know, moms. And, and there's one that I'm actually really, really excited about. I'm not leading this one. And uh, I think David did that on purpose because he said, I talk too much. But there's one called Enemies of the Heart. It's an amazing, amazing study. You need to go through this. I'm telling you, it's, it's just some of the practical stuff that Jesus taught. If you keep wondering, like, why your life kind of keeps getting derailed, keeps getting sidetracked, you thought you had some things beat, right? And then they come back again and again. You need to check this out. So remember, enemies of the heart, it's on that card there in your seat back. You got to check it out. But small groups are so, so important. They're so vital to your experience as a Jesus follower or as a Christian, all right? So that's the commercial now we're going back to Jesus, right? He's given us the first ever episode of Law and Order. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, Jesus said, when he was attacked by robbers. And then they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. This guy's wearing clothes and they take his clothes. He's got money, they take his money. They take everything, they beat him up. They leave him naked and bleeding on the side of the road. And if you know the story, then you know what happens next. We'll skip over those couple of verses. Two religious guys come by, two people who are church people, pastors, priests, uh, whatever you might want to, whatever terminology you've had in your past, your experience. They come and they pass by along the road, and there's a guy laying on the side of the road, bruised, naked, bleeding, hurting, obviously the victim of some kind of crime. And he's Jewish, and they're Jewish, and they just walk on by. And that's shocking to us. Can't imagine that happening because we would at least pull out our phones and call 911. Some of us wouldn't stop. Can I hear? No, we won't do that. But this was so common to them in those days. And this is something, again, that we don't understand 2,000 years later. But they thought and they taught that if you're suffering, you must deserve it. If you're beat up and bleeding and bruised, you deserve it, right? And before we judge them too harshly for thinking about that, we all think this to some extent, right? We've all thought these things about different people. You got what you deserved. And here's what everybody who's ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan get. The, the crowd that was there 2,000 years ago, Jesus' first audience, you sitting here today, this is something we all pick up on. That if those two Jewish religious leaders passed by their hurting and broken Jewish neighbor laying by the side of the road, then they were in the wrong. Because we've all agreed, Jesus has agreed, the lawyer who's against Jesus has agreed, the things that matter most to God are love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And right off the bat in Jesus' story, here's two religious people that now Jesus is basically calling out as being sinners. 
or wrongdoers, or whatever language you want to put on it, hypocrites. Ask anybody here who knows the story, who are the bad guys in the story of the Good Samaritan? And we almost always skip right over the robbers, and we go straight to the religious people who didn't stop, because that was the point of Jesus's story. We get the point. Jesus and everybody, the expert lawyer, they've all agreed that putting loving God, we need to put that equal with loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so the religious leaders pass by, and, and, and they don't even love their Jewish neighbors, and so they're the bad guys. And Jesus continues on with the story. But a Samaritan, someone who came from the area, the country of Samaria, and when he said this word, all of the Jewish people in the crowd wrinkled their nose like they were standing downwind from a porta potty It's just, ah, uh, Samaritan. Why are you telling us a story and then putting a Samaritan in the story? We don't want to. And the best way to think about the difference between Jewish people and Samaritans was this institutionalized racism. No Jews liked Samaritans. And no Samaritans liked Jews. They didn't shake hands. They didn't speak to each other. They didn't go over each other's house for dinner. They had, you know, Samaria was like right in the middle kind of of Israel. They would walk around each other's territory. They wouldn't even take the straight path through. They, would, they hated each other. They didn't trade. It was like apartheid. It was like Nazi Germany. It was like American history with slavery and all of the lingering effects. And Jesus has just spoken a term to a Jewish crowd that has immediately made them recoil from his story. A Samaritan. Well, well who are you going to make the Samaritan out to be in this story? We're with you for a point, but now we're not sure, Jesus, if we're tracking. We're not sure if we're still following along with what you're saying. And the lawyer loves this, right? Because if Jesus alienates the Jewish crowd, the lawyer knows that he's going to win because everybody in the Jewish crowd hates Samaritans. In fact, when Jesus said that this guy had been beaten up by somebody, their first thought was probably Samaritans. It was Samaritans that did it, right? I mean, do we want to get real up in City Grace this morning? Maybe some of us in this room or maybe some of the people that we know, if we hear about certain crimes in certain places, don't we assume certain things about the kind of people that have done those things? Awkward silence. Wish I had my ox squash powers right now. We do. There are assumptions we all have. It comes from our history in America and everything that we've been through. And this was Jesus' audience. This was the tension. Did anybody feel the tension that came into the room when I said that? Like everybody gets real uncomfortable and real awkward. Like I wanted to bring that into the room because I want you to know just how, just how shocking this was to Jesus' audience, to the Jewish people suddenly hearing that a Samaritan was walking by. But a Samaritan, Jesus said, as he traveled, came where the man was, where the Jewish man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, a Samaritan, who was supposed to be a lower class of person than the Jewish people, did what the religious Jewish people, the best of the Jewish people, the holiest of the Jewish people, what they would not do, a Samaritan has done. And then Jesus starts building them up even more, and they can't even hardly believe it. The Samaritan goes to the Jewish man and bandaged his wounds, which means he had to touch him. And he poured in oil and wine, which cost money and cost resources. And then he put the man on his own donkey, which means, again, he picked him up 
and put him on the donkey. And the Jew rode on the donkey while the Samaritan had to walk along leading the donkey for miles and miles and miles till they could reach somewhere for help. And he brought him to an inn and he took care of him, which made the Samaritan knowledgeable, made him capable. It made him somebody with worth and with value to contribute into the shared human existence. And Jesus has just said all of this about a Samaritan. And the crowd's thinking, like, do we even know any Samaritans? I don't know any Samaritans. Dude, surely no Samaritans would act like that. Surely no Samaritans would treat me like that because I know that I wouldn't treat a Samaritan like that. And then Jesus isn't even done. And he tells them, and the next day, which they're like, come on, the next day, this guy stayed the night at the hotel to care for this man, right? I mean, come on, somebody. You got family you wouldn't stay the night to help out if they were in this condition, right? For sure not your spouse's family. And the next day, he took out two denarii, some money, and he gave it to the innkeeper, and he told the innkeeper, look, look after him. And when I return, come on, Jesus. When I return, not only is he going to help him, he's going to come back and check on him later. When I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you might have. So over the top. I mean, some of us would struggle to do this. We're so busy. We're so tied up and on a budget. And I've, I'll call 911 for you, you know, but I got a thing with some people over there. It's going to take me a while. I can't help you to the extent that this Samaritan has helped this man. And everybody is leaning into the story and they're shaking their heads and they just can't believe that Jesus would be building up a Samaritan like this. And that's when Jesus did something that just has spanned the centuries and it has lasted far beyond one conversation with one lawyer. He redefined what it should mean when we say the word neighbor. He tells us what we should think when we say the word neighbor. And ever since Jesus did this, Ever since Jesus put this out into the air, people can no longer simply define neighbors by physical location. Ever since Jesus did this, I would argue that all of us, but for sure, if you call yourself a Christian or a Jesus follower, we no longer get to define neighbor as meaning people who look like us or talk like us or smell like us or vote like us or vote like us, or vote like us, or, thank you, who speak like us, who think like us. Ever since this story, neighbor goes beyond national borders. Ever since this story, neighbor goes beyond nationality or ethnicity or what kind of food you eat, but tacos are still the best. I'm just saying. But just in... And then, just in case you're not uncomfortable enough, ever since Jesus said this, neighbor goes beyond religious boundaries, faith boundaries as well. Samaritans and Jews had some differences in what they believed about God and about their condition and their relationship with God. And Jesus, with one small story, a few verses, with one simple question, so, so powerful. And this isn't even a Christian thing. This is a human thing. This should make all of us, if you're here today, whether you follow Jesus or not, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, this should make you examine your priorities. This should make you examine whether or not you have prejudices 
It should make us all ask ourselves and try really hard to dig down and see if there are certain parts of life that we see through some kind of filter of race or class or background. Even though we know we shouldn't, even though society has said that we have moved on, it still should make us ask, is there anything in me that feels like this nose wrinkle, this contempt for somebody who looks or thinks or votes different than I do? And the crowd is leaning in to what Jesus has taught. All of this is bundled up in these few short words that Jesus has said. And the crowd is leading in, the crowd of believers and skeptics alike, people who were for Jesus and people who were against Jesus. And, and they don't really know what's going on. Jesus is shocking them all. He's flipping the categories. The, the Jewish religious guys are the bad guys. Suddenly a Samaritan seems to be the good guy. And I mean, none of us really believe a Samaritan could ever be a good guy. Maybe we can see the religious guys being bad. Okay, probably the religious guys are the bad guys, but Jesus, where are you going with this? And please, please, Jesus, don't walk away and leave us hanging like you usually do. Please finish the story. And once Jesus is sure that everybody's hanging on his every word, Jesus asks the question, the question that has resonated through the centuries and shaped policy and religious circles and in secular circles, a, a question that's created new categories for judging character and citizenship and and he asked them, he asked the man, which of these three, the two religious guys or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? Which is such an easy question. We all know the answer, right? We all get it. We all know who the neighbor was. And that makes the question so weighty and that makes the question so, convic so convicting. And, and there's, an, there's a couple of things that happen here. Look, first, notice who Jesus gives the privilege or the opportunity of defining who the neighbor was. The man who is hurting is the one who gets to decide who the neighbor was. Not you, lawyer. Not you, religious person. Not you, holy man. We're not judging this by your ideas of what's neighborly. We're not judging this by your expectations or your ideas of how much help would be appropriate. Forget all of that. Let's ask who we should ask who the neighbor is. Let's ask the people in need who their neighbor is. Let's ask the people who are hurting who they see as a neighbor. Let's ask the broken and the bruised who has been a neighbor to them. Let's ask the oppressed. Let's ask the hungry. Let's ask the naked. Let's ask those that are discriminated against. Let's ask those with no clothes and those who have no way of helping out themselves. It makes those who are in need the ones who get to decide whether or not we have been a neighbor. That's tough, because I think I did enough, but have I really involved myself enough to know that I have done enough? And the second thing that Jesus does here is he just, he clarifies the commandments that God gives, the commandments that God thinks will inherit eternal life. In other words, we could really probably rephrase Jesus' question like this, which of these three loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving another as himself? Which one of these proved that they really loved God? Which one of these really saved the day, did something that was no doubt an answer to a prayer? Do, you, do we get this? That, that man laying there probably prayed a prayer for help. And when heaven answered, 
heaven answered in the form of a Samaritan. So which one of these three did the thing that we would expect heaven to do? And with this one question, here's the thing. Jesus makes being a hero accessible to all of us. Jesus makes being a hero available and open to every single person in this room. He takes away all of our excuses, hello. He takes away all of our reasons why we wouldn't or shouldn't or couldn't. He puts them all away because becoming an answer to a hurting person's prayer is within all of our reach. We may not have enough to help everybody, but I guarantee you God has blessed you enough to help somebody. Can I hear an amen? The crowd stays quiet. And the expert is thinking to himself, why did I ask such a stupid question with all of these people watching me? And he knows this. It was something he knows. Once he answers the question, once we answer the question, he's accountable, and we are accountable to our own answer. Think about it. Once you answer the question, you're accountable to your own answer. You're accountable to your own deeds and your own actions. And the expert in the law, the one that came to trap Jesus, the one that came to embarrass Jesus, Jesus asks him who was a neighbor to the man, and the expert in the law replied what he the only thing he could reply, notice he can't even say the word Samaritan. He can't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He still just has to describe him by what he did. And he says, the one who had mercy on him. And I think Jesus smiled at him like, gotcha, gotcha. And Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. And that was it. And nobody cheered. Nobody clapped because everybody was answering the question for themselves kind of like we today are probably answering this question for ourselves. And an unexpected person having such a hero-like effect on someone who is in need, it just had a sobering and calming effect on everybody in the crowd, just like it should touch our hearts and have that same effect on us. And literally, the world would change because of what had just been said by Jesus. The kind of love that Jesus talks about in this story is a love that crosses every single boundary. It's a, it's a love that breaks down prejudices. It's, it's, a, it's a way of seeing the world that just crosses class and social circles. And the days of loving people who just look like you and talk like you and eat and smell and vote and were born like you, those days were beginning to end with the life and the ministry and the public career of Jesus. Because not too long after this, he would, he would live what he preached. He would practice what he preached. And Jesus would climb a hill called Calvary. And Jesus would be nailed to a cross. And Jesus would become the neighbor to every soul who has ever lived. To everyone, everywhere, in every generation, Jesus became the neighbor. And Jesus proved his love for us by stooping down to where we are. Jesus proved his love for us. Jesus proved his care for us by binding up our hurts and our wounds. Can I hear an amen from somebody? Jesus has proven his love for us time and time again by caring for our broken hearts, by giving us what we could never afford on our own, by forgiving things that we can't seem to forget, regrets that we can't seem to escape, and by shielding us from things that want to leave us more than halfway dead. And when Jesus did his incredible act of mercy on that cross, the world 
changed. Something shifted in human history. Something shifted in the way that humans now define what it meant to be a neighbor to someone in our same world. And and the world has never been the same. And, And whether you love him or hate him or you're not sure about him, I'm telling you, Jesus has changed everything. Jesus has made it so that the world can never be the same again. And the way that we see ourselves and our relationship with God will forever be altered as well because it's to be measured by how well we maintain the relationships with our neighbors around us. And loving our neighbor would never again be confined to our neighborhood. And so, the summary of this whole thing, if the musicians could go ahead and come, the question that we need to ask today, and it's a simple question and you already know the answer, but man, it's heavy. And man, it's so very convicting, and I would ask you, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man? It's the one who saw a need and met it. It's someone who found out the price and paid it. It's someone who decided that he wasn't going to talk himself out of it. If we were to rephrase Jesus' questions and say, which of these three loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving another as himself? It's a man who saw a need and met it. It's someone who was willing to find out the price and then to pay it. It was the one man who did not talk himself out of helping the person that was in need. And it's a simple question, but it's a hard question to answer because it's so very convicting. It's something that we know that all of us can do. And Jesus said to the lawyer, and Jesus would say to each and every one of us, go and do likewise. Go. Be a Samaritan. Go find a need. And then meet it. Go ask someone what price they can't pay on their own. And then, out of what God has blessed you with, pay it for them. Give it to them. And here's the thing, when you see that opportunity, and when you see that person hurting, sometimes it's so awkward. And we're not sure if we want to have the conversation. We're not sure of the words. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We're not sure how to approach them. We think they're hurting, but like, how do you open that door? Like, how do you start that conversation? But just don't talk yourself out of it. Don't talk yourself out of it. Here's the thing. I could go person by person in this room. We can go story by story. I know most of you here. And here's the thing that I know about everybody here, that we're all here because of someone else. We're all here because of someone else. We're all here because someone else saw us and loved us and decided that they weren't going to talk themselves out of helping us. We're all here because someone loved us and gave to us and someone was patient with us and kind with us. I would not be here today if it wasn't for somebody else who had been my hero. Not just one day, but a lot of days. Someone has been my hero. Way more days than should have been necessary, but... I know this of me and I know this of you, that you would not be here if someone hadn't gone out of their way to see your need and meet it, to ask what it was going to cost to help you and they were willing to pay it, to not talk themselves out of it when you came to their mind. And here's the thing, just like they didn't know what hanged in the balance, hung in the balance of their decision to help you, so you have no idea what hangs in the balance of your decision to help somebody who can't help themselves. You don't know what their lives could become. You see them as they are. You see them in their brokenness and you see them in their hurt. But there's something far more great that God has planned for their lives and you could be the answer to a prayer that someone hurting and broken is praying right now. 
And you have no idea what hangs in the balance of being a good Samaritan. Can we all stand this morning? If you'd all stand, and I wonder if every one of us would bow our heads and close our eyes today. Today I've talked a lot about the Samaritan, but maybe if I can start with this one, with every head bowed and every eye closed, maybe there's somebody today that you're, you feel like you're the one that's hurting and broken by the side of the road. Anybody here today would want to raise their hand and say, Jesus, I, I need someone to find me. Come on, all over the room. If, if that's you, come on, if you're hurt, could you raise your hand? I see hands going up. God bless you today. God bless you today. In the middle, on the sides, I see you with your hands up. You can put your hands down. Everybody keep your heads down, your eyes closed. I want to say to everybody that just raised their hand, God hears your prayer. God knows your hurt. God sees your brokenness. God was not caught off guard by what has surprised you. And God, through the family of this church, I pray, I pray that it happens through us. God will meet your needs. God is going to answer your prayers. Can I hear an amen from somebody who has had prayer answered before? For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.